Today we're joined by Mike Dominic of The Mad Botter and of The Mike Dominic Show. Mike runs his own business. He's been running it for a few years now, and he's also really successfully built up podcasts. So we're excited to talk to him about his perspective on the other side of someone who's started something new and now has his own business with employees and is dealing with the joys or maybe not so much joys of working with the bigger tech companies as an independent shop. Welcome to the practical podcast for technical people who want to start their own company. From founding to building your business, we're here to help. I'm Sean Hemel. And I'm Harris Kenny. This is the Hello Blink Show. I don't know the origin story of the Mad Botter, Mike, even though we're working together and we've known each other for a bit. What led you to start the Mad Botter? Yeah, well, first off, thank you guys for having me. Um, you know, I actually have an unusual educational background for being in tech. I have a medieval lit degree, which, so going through that course, you read a lot. Um, I needed a name for a company. I actually opened, so the Mad Botter used to be called something like Buccaneers, but I don't know how much you follow the NFL. There is a football team called the Buccaneers right here in Tampa, Florida. So that ended up not being the best choice. So went over and switched everything. Um, also had a product called Alice, which was like a chat bot, kind of a chat assistant. Think like Siri, but for Slack. So really just leaning into the Lewis Carroll references. I didn't realize the medieval literature background. So, like, I mean, I'm familiar with, like, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. I'm yep. sure there's more to it than that. <laughs> I'm sure they had more than one story. Uh, is that still, like, an interest that you pursue as you're running? We're, we'll ask more business questions, but that just, like, really caught my interest. Uh, do, you, do you still, like, uh, cultivate that at all? Read, read stories like that or follow that world at all? Yeah, I actually have on my bookshelf uh, to read a, a book by one of my professors. He wrote a... Uh, the Medieval Mind's Understanding of Space. I, I probably have the title wrong, but I ju just picked it off off, uh, off Amazon about a week ago. So yeah, more of a hobby now, obviously, but it's right next to my Python cookbook. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Um, so, so yeah, what does your company do and, and what kind of customers do you serve at the Mad Botter? Not the Buccaneer or the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. <laughs> yeah, uh, we, we serve failing quarterbacks. No, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> it's... So our companies tend to be what's called MROs. Uh, I'm sorry, our customers tend to be what's called MROs, which is, see if I get it right, maintenance, repair, and operations for um, either military aircraft or civilian aircraft. Uh, basically, these guys work on jet engines, repairing aircraft, all that kind of stuff. If you think about planes, if you're not super familiar with them, you might not realize that they're just like really big machines, kind of like your car, right? Um, so yeah, they're like souped up Jippy Lubes or Goodyears for airplanes. Yeah, so you mentioned that you have government versus commercial. And yep. I'm curious, how does, that, how does that pipeline or dealing with customers, dealing with your clients differ between government and commercial? Because I imagine that's a pretty big difference. Yeah, it's a dramatically different process. Um, government contracts by law, I mean, I'm sure there are like a few weird exceptions here and there. But they are an open bid process where you're going to something like um, SBA. Not SBA. Well, you could go through the SBA, actually. Um, you could go to USA Jobs looking for kind of contracting work. We do a lot of subcontracting for other firms for the government, too. But the when you're doing a direct contract, it's actually kind of think about, I don't want to say waterfall, but from a software development perspective, it, it, it is more of a waterfall process of writing up a giant RFP, writing up a spec, and putting that in as a bid, um, where on the commercial side, it's a little more agile. So you can work with a commercial client and, say, build a relationship with them and not have to go through that process still, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, ultimately, a lot of things do come down to relationships no matter what. Uh, one of the primary challenges in government contracting is actually knowing that the contract exists. Because I, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, many of the federal government's websites, but they're not exactly super user-friendly. <laughs> no, no, they are not. Yeah. Uh, so if somebody is creating something and they have it as a commercial product or they have it as a commercial service, is it an easy jump to then take that to government? Or is that a whole rigmarole that you're just like, you know what, if you don't have to deal with government contractors, don't do it at all? Um, I, it's definitely not easy. 
I would I would go as far as to say if you are it, it really depends on what you're doing, right? But if you're a small company like we are, you have to you almost want to partner with bigger shops to do government work unless it's something that's like directly in your wheelhouse. For for, for example, way back when I started out when I was a, just an independent developer as an iPhone developer. So anything even to this day that is like um, in fact, there's a couple articles where we were taking iPads and Surface Pros and like fastening them to the cockpits of plane running some uh, radar software, basically a display of the plane's radar. But because it's so expensive to re-engineer, rebuild the custom systems that say a Garmin would sell like the Air Force, um, this system is literally go to the Apple Store, buy an iPad, run the software, and it's good for training missions and things like that. And so you said you started off doing that for commercial then? Uh, no, I started off doing a ton of, well, yes, a ton of iOS development for various types of commercial industries. Um, okay. And just saw an opportunity because one of the issues as we were trying to break into government contracting was there would always be this like big vendor who had their weird proprietary system that they built using, you know, not just their own software, but like their own hardware. And really their hardware was often just some no-name tablet that they, you know, whatever, right? It would be like a PC that they docked to the plane or something like that. But they had it at such a, let's say, luxurious markup that it would stall the entire project. And being the little guy, our biggest problem at the time was, well, the longer this bidding process takes, the more money we're losing because we have to do all this work up front to bid, and that kills our margin. So on a lark, I just came out and said, what if we just like fastened an iPad to this, wrote up a quick proof of concept, and we were off to the races. Right. And then so once you had the once you had that commercial product rolling, you said it was easy enough, more or less, to jump to say, hey, we can take this product and then market it to government contracts. It's actually funny. So what happened is I pitched it to a commercial airline in a flight training school first. They rejected it because they thought it was crazy, but a Contact actually got the Navy to try it out for us. So even though the government was harder to get the meeting for, they were more willing to take a take a risk. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah, that's really cool that that worked out for you. Because I'm I'm wondering because I've seen this come up. You know, when I worked at SparkFun, um, the idea of you know should we make things for government? Should we take on government contracts? That was a conversation we've had a few times and. You know, sometimes it's no, keep doing what you're doing. But at, you know, at some point, if I guess if somebody's willing to write a big enough check for you, you can say, hey, let's branch off and do this, right? Like we, we're already making these things, but is there any reason to pursue both? Or do you really want to like focus on one or the other first? Yeah, you know, I would say the government is like the biggest, most bureaucratic enterprise customer you could possibly have. But <laughs> there are advantages, right? The nice thing about the government is they pay their bills, no matter what. Yeah. Right? There, there's no such thing as, you know, the accounting lady was on vacation and they forgot to send the check. Um, they are willing to write larger checks on things that a private customer might consider R&D, right? The disadvantage is they love bureaucracy. They so let's just say, let's just make up a contract, right? Let's call it the uh, Harris's and Sean's magical plane software. And let's say I bid on that tomorrow and the deadline was Friday. I might not hear about that for six to nine months. And hearing about it doesn't mean a yes or a no. It could just be, you know, we're still taking bids or we have a question, something like that. That's really right. interesting. And oh, go ahead, Sean. I was going to say, in that case, you're the government and like you might play the waiting game. So you need some type of revenue stream to hold you up. Um, you know, for that, what could almost be a year. Yeah, and in, in, in cases it has been. There have been a few cases where I've been on jobs and completely forgot about them because <laughs> <laughs> then you suddenly have a ton of work to yeah. do. Surprise! Surprise! <laughs> um, it's so. This is where kind of partnering comes into play because there are larger um, contractors out there who have you know multi-year deals, particularly with the DoD or other branches of the government that they can always use a hand from a from a small vendor who you know is is specialized right because these big shops really don't want to specialize down and have people on staff that you know maybe they don't have the work so it's interesting i'm hearing you describe this and there's a number of companies that are in the open source space that i know of i don't want to name names because I, I think sometimes the government work is secret but i'll just kind of reel off a couple of generic references i mean i 
you know, for just for example, the NSA it runs Linux at that data center in Utah, and they're one of the biggest users of open source technology in the world. Uh, I know quite a few small open source hardware companies who rely on government business, whether it's in the you know intelligence side, military side, um, and sometimes it's procurement, but other times it's using SBIR grants. Um, you know, the interesting thing about open source is I think it tends to be exploring things that other people aren't thinking about or just approaching it in a way that other people aren't thinking about. There's like a resourcefulness, kind of like you're describing with the iPad example. So I do think that there's something there that I think that for people who are thinking about starting their own companies, it's important to recognize that like, don't be surprised if you get contacted by uh, a research, like a national research laboratory or, you know, maybe NIST or, you know, EPA, I don't know, but it, it seems to happen sort of time and time again. And now that I'm thinking about it, basically every single open hardware company that I know does some meaningful amount of business with some sort of uh, government agency. And I, I, don't, I don't know that people are aware of that, uh, that, that are maybe thinking about starting something, but it's definitely something that you're gonna have to think about at some point, or you can always say no to the business, but I think there's a lot of good reasons to say yes to that business too, like you were just saying. Yeah, I, I think one common misconception though is people hear government contract and they assume you're automatically talking millions, right? Right. The truth is if anything hits the million dollar mark, the big, you know, the, the Raytheons and Northrops are gonna be all over that. And you might get a piece of that for reasons of like preferential bidding towards small businesses, um, or like if you have a veteran status, something like that. But there are tons of little like, you know, proof of concept jobs that it's just not worth, I'm just making, you know, a khaki or a Raytheon's time to even, even put their biz dev guy on, right? That's where if, for that case of somebody starting out like an open hardware company, I think those are probably going to be where you want to go. Oh, that's, you know what, that's absolutely fascinating and a great point, because I would have thought that, you know, government means big money, but if you go niche and you offer your services and you're a one-person, three-person shop, you could potentially do a good amount of business with the government for these niche jobs that, you know, your Raytheons and Northrop Grumman's don't want to touch. That's a great point. Yeah, it's also good for the com commercial side of the business, um, because, you know, there's always that conversation, hey, you're a small company, can you you know, references like, sure, this person's in the Navy, right? That basically <laughs> ends that conversation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just that quality of reference. Hey, look, we can do things that's good enough for the Navy. I'm sure we can do something for, you know, your little widget company. I think, I think we can meet your standards as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I want to ask real fast, uh, Harris and Mike, have either of you run into this? And I've noticed a lot of times, because Harris, you brought up the whole idea of the open source and that government's using a lot of open source. Whenever I go to these open source or hacker maker type of conferences, there seems to be a general distrust of govern government and especially the military, right? We have a lot of people who were, you know, Microsoft boycotting making anything for the military, either for distrust, they don't like the mission, whatever it might be. Um, is that a problem that you've run into trying to do things in both the open source and government worlds? Uh, personally, I have not, although I imagine someone, you know, we're pretty public about the kind of work we do on our website. So I would think those right. people just wouldn't apply. <laughs> That's fair. You you kind of use that as a, as a gating mechanism anyway, right? A squelch right? You're like, oh, yeah. we've, done work. <laughs> we've done work with the Navy. If, if you distrust the military, you're, you don't belong here. Right. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I think the bigger companies have gotten a lot of press for that, where employees are saying, you know, we don't want to work for a technology company that's doing certain projects. I know GitHub has gotten grief, like you said, um, Amazon, Oracle, others. I, I think there is that sort of institutional distrust or uncertainty. But I think also when you talk to some of these folks who are on the government side and you realize the threats that they're facing and where those threats are originating from. And you realize that we're talking about nation states that we're competing with. I think, I mean, I personally have uh, evolved my perspective on this a little bit. I think I think it used to be a little bit more uh, anti-authority. I mean, I still think I have that streak, but I think when you realize that you've got very strong nation states that are being adversarial and, you know, when you've got someone from your own government saying, hey, we could use your help with this problem. We're concerned about this very serious threat. Um, I think that it's, you know, it requires just some thinking of where, where do I draw the line? 
And I think some people may find their, their opinion shifting. I think also, ultimately, if you have the personal freedom to run your own business and you can do something that you're ethically comfortable with, that is a personal freedom that's very meaningful. And so even if it's work that you're a little unsure about, as long as you don't think it's like actively doing harm, as long as you don't think it's like actively evil, if it's a little gray, um, it's, it's hard to say no to a good opportunity. And I think sometimes people are just, when they work in a big company and they, they feel so detached from the work, it becomes like political or like ideological. Um, and I think it, it maybe gets separated from the reality of the situation that they're dealing with because these security threats and a lot of these agencies, what they're trying to deal with are like pretty serious. And it's not just sort of like uh, something to like complain about on Facebook. <laughs> you know, I think there's been lots of very high profile hacks uh, and, and other um, attacks uh, that are pretty clear where they're coming from. And it's like, if you don't want to do anything about it, fine, but it's still going to be going on, you know? Yeah, that makes sense. But that's just my personal opinion. I mean, but moving moving from the the open source side of it, I, I was wondering, because, you know, Mike, you were able to take these customer projects, these services, and you were able to take that customer finance growth and then build a platform. You mentioned Alice earlier. Um, and, you know, there's also Rabot, which is this platform that you've built through the Botter. Can you describe the process of being a services company that then built a product and what Rabot itself actually is, what the product is and does? Sure. So I'll do the politician thing and answer you backwards just to make, make life fun for you. Uh, so Rabot is an automation platform that's basically optimized for keeping your systems secure. So not opening your entire system to say, oh, I don't know, people having to work from home because of a pandemic could be a use case. <laughs> Hypothetically. <laughs> Hypothetically. Yeah. And automating uh, basically data analysis and, you know, rudimentary data tax between different systems. I, I give an example on the website of you're a company using Salesforce for your business development folks, and you want to kind of automate reports on activity and response times, things like that. You could use Rabbit to tie in Salesforce, let's say Office, and uh, probably Teams if you're using Office. Alternatively, we have Slack. We have a bunch of integrations for a bunch of different stuff. But it's effectively behind your firewall automation that can send the results of that automation outside your firewall to or, or inside, if you want, to your remote employees or on-site employees. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense okay. to me. And, and so then how did, you, how did you decide to build that? I mean, because you, you were running these services. How did, how did that product need come up? And how did you go about building it as you were doing the services? Because I think a lot of people think that they need to sort of build a perfect product. And I think it holds a lot of people back from starting a business versus getting started doing services, being a consultant, and then building the product later instead of sort of saying, oh, one day, one day, one day, I'll, I'll start my you know, product company. Do you know what I mean? Well, I had about eight years of one day, one day, one day. So, <laughs> um, no, it, it, you know, when I really started working in earnest with the MROs, um, and oddly enough, with a few agricultural companies, it became very clear that I had been spending years basically writing the same, let's say, 20 modules for every application we wrote. Um, and now, granted, you know, this, a lot of these businesses do need custom software, but there are there is commonality between what they actually want to do, right? There's a common base of common use cases. So first we did Alice, and it kind of handled the tip of the iceberg. But it was pretty clear that it, it was going to be good for, let's say, your digital agency of like eight people. But it wasn't scaling up to our enterprise clients. Um, one of the other changes was we really, you know, there used to be a whole side of my business where we focused on venture startups, which... I'm so happy to say we don't do anymore. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, some of the needs were, were not met with Alice for the new type of client, the MROs, the enterprises. And I, you know, I just sat down with a guy named Dave. He's our director of technology here. And I said, how many times have we written the same integration to Google Drive or to Office 365 and Salesforce in particular? And it, we just went through over the years we've been together. We counted almost 100 times. We would have been better off copying and pasting the code. <laughs> oh, geez. So we came up came up with this idea of, well, you know, at the time, I was primarily doing all the business development for the company. And it came that, you know, one of my big challenges is because of the government work, we are 100% US-based, which by definition means we can't, you know, on a price basis, compete with like offshore companies. 
but some of the commercial clients don't have the same restrictions, right? They, they will go offshore. Um, what if we could offer a pre-built solution that would be the base of whatever they need, right? That would have these common integrations, these common modules, and go from there. Tried it out, uh, built it, and I won't say it's good luck, but um, you know, it just came out in November, and with uh, COVID, we've gotten a pretty significant spike in interest, or at least people willing to discuss a kind of remote work automation tool like that. Oh, that's a perfect opportunity then. You know, a, I, I don't wish a pandemic on anybody or any, yeah. any planet, but uh, that's a silver lining for sure. Yeah, definitely hesitant to call it an opportunity, but it, it's certainly a correlation. Yeah. 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 Um, so if you don't mind, I've got a couple of questions about the marketing side of this. So sure. it sounds like you found a really cool niche and opportunity for this uh, for this automation product. And, you know, so you initially worked with a couple of, of clients up front, right, to get feedback. Is that what you did? Like built an MVP, got some feedback and um, iterated from there. Yeah, we had a couple of clients that are uh, long term clients that we basically said, if you let us try this on you, we'll just comp comp the fee. <laughs> right. You're our guinea pigs. Right. right. But. You know, it, it one we had built those relationship over uh, over years, so they trusted us. Two, it's most people say yes to something that's free, right? It's mm. yeah, that is true, and especially with those relationships, you know, they they probably want to help you just as much as you want to help them, and it becomes a nice back and forth if you have that good relationship. Absolutely. And so once you have that built up, you know, you've had it out for you said what it came out in November, so a couple of months. Yep. Um, what is your, can you talk about what your marketing funnel looks like, right? What is your top of funnel? How do people find this or is it coming from a new product? And then you move them through the pipeline to get to, um, them signing up for this. Can you talk about that? So I can tell you what the plan was going to be and then what it became. Oh yeah, absolutely. That's, that's the learning process, <laughs> so, and, right? Yeah. And Harris knows this. Um, I had a pretty aggressive trade show oriented sales strategy for the spring. That obviously isn't going to happen for reasons so i i have the good fortune of i actually was the host of a show called coder radio for over seven years over on jupiter broadcasting um so i already had kind of an online audience so we've completely switched to um i I hate the term but inbound strategy of podcasting blogging um i i'm extremely active on like tech nerd twitter so that has proven to be Honestly, I love it because my plan was going to cost me a fortune in <laughs> plane tickets and hotel rooms and booths and things like that. This, we, ju- I mean, Harris has been extremely helpful with this. We just basically stood it up when, like, two months ago. Is that? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Getting MailChimp set up and integrating yeah. things with Slack. And it's, I have been surprised about the, re- uh, in terms of the response. Like, I, I, I'll be honest, guys, I, I have hired marketing consultants. I have done all of that stuff. And to say I was an inbound skeptic is a dramatic understatement. So why why the distrust for inbound or is it just the term itself? What what well, how did that start? Yeah, so so there's a there's a sordid history here, I guess I could say. In the past, I have tried everything from Google AdWords, which proved to not move the needle at all, to actually hiring like a Facebook advertising consultant. I know there's a different name for that, but just can't remember what it is. Um, and when people ask me about Facebook ads, and I'm sure this is different for other types of businesses, or maybe I just did it wrong, but I said it was the quickest $5,000 I've ever lost in a weekend. <laughs> other, other than that one time at Vegas, right? Yeah. Well, <laughs> at least I don't remember the Vegas one, though. So, <laughs> yeah, right, There you go. You don't know. <laughs> yeah. It's, what I found is um, the type of types of people that I want to reach. Well, they, well, you know, most people have Facebook accounts. So you can't say they're not on Facebook. They don't seem to be looking for this type of enterprise software connection on Facebook. And I, I kind of think because it's such a, you know, these projects are not two weeks long. You have to work with the per- per- person or the team for months and months and months. Um, and you end up having to establish some sort of credibility, which is why I think the podcasting and the blogging works better um, because, you know, if someone listens to you for seven years, talk about why you hate PHP, <laughs> unless they like PHP, they probably think you, you are either crazy or know what you're talking about. It turns out people hire crazy people all the time. <laughs> That's so true. <laughs> so which, which of those platforms do you believe? I mean, I know it's hard to track some of the exact metrics, but which do you believe have 
turned into more business opportunities for you? Or is it a combination of them? So I, I'm a strong believer in Twitter. Um, my reasoning is Twitter is kind of an outlet of everything else you're doing, right? Uh, I, Metrics-wise, we just started the newsletter. I'm surprised at the response to that. It's been a lot higher than I thought it was. I kind of thought it was going to be a, you know, like an also-ran. But just having being able to tweet out the newsletter, which contains written content, the blog episodes, has been extremely helpful. And I, I, I am very active. Like, for instance, uh, next week on the blog, I have a bunch of listener questions that I'm just going to go through and answer, right? Common questions. Actually, perfect for your audience. You know, how the hell do I start marketing my services? Right. Yeah, no, that would be, that would be extremely helpful. Yeah. Um, you know what? I have found the same thing. Um, I've done, you know, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, dabbled in ads a little bit, but honestly, I find that for just building relationships with people, Twitter seems to be a fantastic place to go. Um, specifically for tech stuff, right? Yeah. If you're in like the fashion industry, I'm sure Pinterest and Instagram are better for your particular industry than say Twitter, but I find a lot of tech people have great conversations on Twitter. And that's, is that what you're also finding? It's just like, that's where the tech people are. Yeah, I, I mean, I have, I would say I have more conversations on Twitter than anywhere else. And I'm very surprised, even with the uh, website analytics, because obviously I think like everybody else, we use Google Analytics a lot of the traffic is actually from like my personal Twitter account, which is oh, something I found surprising. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, and I've noticed that you have both your personal account and the Madbotter, correct? Correct. Yep. Um, and it's just, I guess, and I, I've also found the same thing with, you know, if there's a company account and I, I believe that, say, your CEO should have a personal account because then people treat, even though they're representative of that company, people treat that person as a person. You might have different kinds of conversations with the CEO than a company account. Because let's be honest, that company account is probably run by a separate person. Um, but it just creates a different dynamic from what I've seen. Yeah. And you know, it, you know, I used to actually not have a company account. And it got to the point of, I was getting not complaints, but kind of nudges that like, hey, we're having this conversation and your little Twitter bot that you wrote just invited me to like sign up for a white paper. Right. So not that I won't retweet stuff from the company account that's that's marketing oriented, but I like to I like the separation. I think it's helpful. It's you know it's more authentic, and I as things grow, it, it's actually true that the voice of the company like you can tell when I actually wrote the company's tweets and when I haven't. Um, a good giveaway is if anything's ever super cool or super exciting, I wrote it. If <laughs> if not, somebody else did. And I definitely recommend, I think for smaller companies, I think there's this um, sometimes thought that, you know, we want to pretend to be bigger, uh, pretend to be a bigger company, a global business, and, you know, with a big team. And sometimes I find that there's a real strength in embracing the being a little smaller, just acknowledging that you're a little smaller or that, you know, yes, I'm the CEO and yes, I'm on Twitter talking about what we do. Um, I think it personalizes things. I think there's a trust that comes with that. It's something that like a bigger firm or a bigger platform just can't, they can't fake it. And so when you're talking about the authenticity, I think that's a, a real thing. And, and you said before too, that it's ultimately about relationships. Um, so I think putting yourself out there, I think a lot of technical folks don't want to put themselves out there because it's sort of this exercise in vulnerability. It's a little uncomfortable. Um, I think there's probably a natural <laughs> sort of privacy preference and aversion towards sort of being a public figure. Um, but I do think that that is a trade-off that uh, there, there, there can be really good benefits from making that, that, that decision to do that, um, even though I think it may not be a natural fit for a lot of people, especially for people who are listening to the show, that, that personality type. Yeah, I could see that. Well, so, so Sean, you mentioned Instagram. I, I'm very curious. I mean, I'm, I'm looking at your site. I like your, uh, your lab coat. I like everything you got here. Is that the kind of stuff you're Instagramming? Uh, so Instagram, I have not found a good stride with Instagram okay. yet. Um, I it's something I've played with, and what I find it's it's mostly a, my most of my followers there are people who know me from Facebook and Twitter anyway. Okay. Um, it's just kind of a secondary account for me. Um, I post either projects that look cool, 
And I find that I'm posting a little more personal stuff on Instagram because it is like my Facebook followers. So it's like, oh, I went on a nature walk today or I made this cool cocktail. Sometimes I'll repost that to Twitter as well and I get some good response. But usually like the personal like, oh, I made this cool meal or I made this cool drink. That does better on Instagram than Twitter because it just seems to be a division in the followers like I was talking about. And because Instagram is so visual or yeah, Instagram is so visually focused you have to have those pictures. You have to have something visually compelling or it completely gets lost in the noise. Whereas you could make a, a a quip in, like, you know, a one-sentence quip in Twitter and that will go viral just because Twitter is set up to do that um, and people can pick up on those things. So, I mean, I try to cultivate some of it. I personally find that Instagram is full of people who are, you know, the, the selfie people, right? Like, oh, look at me doing this thing. Look at me doing this thing. Look at me with my friends out having a good time. That is most of the stuff I find on Instagram. And even the tech stuff, I find that it's what I call uh, tech selfies. And it's all about this like interesting project that somebody has made. And sometimes they're cool. And sometimes they're like, fake and you, you like they're like look i made a perpetual motion machine yeah. and you're like no you no, didn't yeah. you just tricked the camera to do that oh my goodness like i saw one of like somebody put like two batteries next to each other and they're like look i'm spinning this piece of wire and made a motor i'm like there's zero electricity flowing how are you doing this this is this can't be real i mean so if you like magic tricks and selfies i guess instagram is fantastic <laughs> but for the tech world i i don't buy into it i don't have good discussions generally um if I post the same thing on Twitter versus Instagram, I'll usually get better discussions. People will ask me more things about something I'm working on on Twitter. And that's just what I have found. Interesting. Yeah, I, I do have an Instagram account that I haven't used in probably over a year or two. Um, but yeah, it was mostly like, this is the weird Hendrix cocktail I made or something like that, right? Not, not, <laughs> not, a, yeah, not a whole lot of, uh, I, I think I did at one point screen cap like, some weird ASCII art animation I did because I was trying something out, but that was a long time ago. We might as yeah. well talk about the the joyless elephant in the room, which is LinkedIn. Obviously, not <laughs> not fun to use, <laughs> but it is, I think, a very good platform to be on. And Mike, you're really active on LinkedIn as well. Um, I, I think that's a must a must have for especially if you want to run or, or start your own business. I mean, obviously, be, having founder or CEO in your title is going to get you a whole bunch of fun spam. But I just think that's a must-have, especially for business development and new relationships. Yeah, I mean, the way I think about it, Twitter is like a perfect Hendrix martini. LinkedIn is like some green juice the next morning. <laughs> <laughs> it's just what it is. I mean, I the spam point is unbelievable, right? Just saying you own a software development shop on LinkedIn, prepare to never be able to open your messages tab. Uh, it's... <laughs> crazy it's it's i've never seen spam like this but there are good conversations to have um, i i do find that i'm curious what you guys think that people are a little more overtly marketing polished if i can say that i know that's not a great way to phrase that but it you know what i, I see a lot of people use a voice where it sounds like they're on bloomberg news right <laughs> Yeah, I do not. I do think it's more like performative, right? right? That's a better word, performative. Yeah, yeah, where they're like sort of. Yeah, I def. I mean, I, I'm certain that I'm guilty of that too. I think that's definitely the case with LinkedIn. Yeah, I think LinkedIn has created a culture, like specifically created a culture to be. You know, they were always the the professional version of Facebook. That's always sure. what they tried to be, and I think because of that. You know, like, oh, you basically create your resume as your profile picture. And so everyone adopts this, like you said, Bloomberg News type of voice. Like, oh, I'm going to write this post and it's very, you know, formal and whatnot. Or, you know, the one thing I do like for LinkedIn is that that you can create blog posts. And I've done a few and they usually do fairly well. It's a good platform if you don't, if you're not trying to drive people to your own site for whatever reason. Um, in which case, focus on that. But and LinkedIn can be a good place to do that. But LinkedIn is a great place to write you know, ideations and opinions on business types topics, and you can spread those around, I find. Sometimes if it doesn't fit on your personal blog, LinkedIn is a good platform for that. And you can like hashtag it and share it out and they'll promote it. So don't discount LinkedIn. But yeah, I agree. It's it's the like, put on your suit and tie for, you know, for, for dress up day kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. There are those like hilariously lame, like chain letter meme type things that are on LinkedIn where it's like, you know, I was a hiring manager and someone came to the interview 10 minutes late 
you know, and they were like covered in rain. And I like I let them interview anyway. And like today, that boy is Elon Musk or whatever. They have these like weird, like inspirational yes. posts that like people do. That is probably the worst part of LinkedIn. I think uh, the like motivational, clearly fake story part of LinkedIn. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> Have you guys seen the demotivator po- posters, the demotivation posters? Those were a thing like 10 years ago. Oh yeah, like despair.com, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm going to start I'm going to start reposting some of those on LinkedIn and see how they do. I'm sure it'll help my credibility lots, right? Well, it, it's funny with uh with the lockdowns, at least my what do they call that, the LinkedIn feed, your just like the regular view it algorithmically gives you has turned into kind of a, a group therapy session for parents working from home with small children. <laughs> which I also have a small child, so I feel their pain. <laughs> so I guess LinkedIn knows that and are uh, serving you up exactly what you uh, oh, what you fit into. Right? Oh, I'm sure if we ever got our uh, social graph from LinkedIn, it would be almost as scary as Facebook's, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's something about, something very sophisticated about how they're taking contacts and email addresses and suggesting people because I've had people suggested to me where it's like, wow, like I knew them from like elementary school. Like how the heck did they know to connect me with this person? Or like, I, I, I don't know. I don't know exactly how they built that out, but there's some, they definitely have a ton of information. <laughs> yeah. But there's, they're one of these many platforms. And so this is, I think, a kind of a bigger theme that when you go independent and you start your own business, you do have to deal with these bigger platforms and your exposure to them is different than when you're, an employee at a company because it when you run the business it's potentially uh like a life or death thing uh depending on how your business is built and your business mad botter does integrate with and you talked about apple and salesforce and microsoft already and google and slack what's it like being an independent business interacting with these big platforms on the delivery side you know where they like change an api or you've got to like they're they're going to be you know shifting how one thing talks to something else what is it like being on the like dealing with the the whims of that yeah it it can depend greatly on the uh on the platform vendor themselves so uh salesforce is interesting i i I can't say this is an endorsement or not because i'm just not sure how i really feel about it but they are super focused on getting independent developers um defining independent as like anybody who is not salesforce inc right Mm. to enhance their platform but then they came out with something called Lightning a few years ago. And that really created a uh, bifurcation of the Salesforce APIs. And part of that is Salesforce is not that new anymore, right? So things have to change. Um, but to their credit, they do a lot to make it relatively painless for you to be a developer on their platform. You can actually reach out to someone and get assistance if you don't understand why something's not working. Or you know you need to test on a instance of Salesforce that's, you know, maybe a lightning instance, but you don't want to actually buy an instance of Salesforce for that, right? Usually you can reach out to them and and get some help. Then there's Google, who you can fill out a form and a Python script will just not reply to you. (laughs) So, you know, and that pipes it to dev. Yeah, it's Google in particular has been more volatile. Um, part of that's because they had, I don't know how close you guys pay attention to this stuff. They had some data privacy issues last year. So they really reworked their uh, Google permissions, which definitely affected Rabbit and has required a significant reinvestment because we had to rewrite a bunch of stuff. But they do write great documentation, right? So each of these vendors has their strengths and weaknesses. My favorite actually is Microsoft, which is weird for a guy who actively promotes Linux and Mac all the time. But they are willing to talk to you no matter how small you are and it's not like getting an audience with the pope <laughs> so i that i mean obviously i'm talking my own book here as someone who you know created a a uh, platform that integrates with other platforms i kind of need them to be able to tell me things um but yeah it's you know there's always the sherlock risk where you know one of the platform vendors will just like decide they want to put you out of business because i don't know they do but I, one, I don't know that that's really going to happen too much anymore because of antitrust concerns. And two, I kind of think we're actually at this stage where automation in particular and kind of WYSIWYG creating automation flows is just something that everybody is going to need to offer for all of their tools. 
Um, so it's not shocking that like Slack is trying to do something like this, right? But yeah, it's so far so good. I mean, they're all they all have personality quirks. Then there's Apple, but we don't talk about that. So, <laughs> well, I was going to ask if you if you could say which of these major players is the most difficult Apple. to deal with and why. Apple. Let <laughs> me repeat it. I could, Apple. I could tell you want to think about it. So, what is it about Apple that makes it tough? I think people like being a customer of theirs, but uh, being a developer that interacts with their platform seems to be pretty frustrating at times. So, Apple, I'm actually a iPhone, iPad user, right? I'm talking to you on an iMac Pro right now. So I'm not one of these anti-Apple guys. They make really, really good software that is tied to hardware. The minute you need to be a cloud or you know amorphous service, it just falls down. Um, my days as an iOS developer, I could tell you war stories about iCloud uh, uh, core data or core data in the cloud, whatever they used to call it. CloudKit, which is their don't write a, your own REST API for your iPhone app, is a lot better. But when it came out in 2015, I think, it was really, really broken. Um, their insistence on... I, I'm trying to find a diplomatic way to put this. Okay, th- They tend to view things through the lens of devices, which makes total sense for their business model, right? Not services. Now, they, I know they talk a lot about services and their earnings calls now and things like that. But if you, a perfect example, iPhone apps that offer third-party authorization right now, such as Google or Facebook or whatever, right, now must allow the user to have Apple auth as a, uh, as a choice. Which, as a user, I love that because, one, I'm not authing with Facebook with anything. And Google's, you know, mining my data too, right? However, as a developer you end up in this I just had this scenario for a client about when, when that feature came out about, uh, I think it was in August where because we had to offer Apple as an option, but the service that the client wanted built internally ran on Google, but they wanted it on the app store. So we had to comply with the terms created this crazy signup flow for their users where, if they auth with Apple, we had to show them a scary warning and saying they still had to authorize Google anyway. And in the database, the primary key for the account, and I know I'm getting way too nerdy here, but was one of these randomly generated Apple emails and Apple quids. But we always had to do a lookup on the on the Google account table, which was like, okay, I get that you don't want people being data mined. And I got to be honest, I kind of agree with Apple. But from a practical perspective, if the application's role is to get somebody's uh, you know, Google admin information to manage whatever they're doing for their clients, their IT infrastructure. Um, I'm sorry, not their IT, their Google suite infrastructure. Then maybe Google just is the right choice there, right? And it doesn't have to be Google. It could be the same thing with Office 365 or SharePoint or whatever. But just because if you want to be on the store, you must have that option is a little strange. And there's a million examples like this, right? You can't have a link to your website if your website has a shopping cart uh, for digital goods. Why? Because Apple said so. You, you have to go through their store. Yeah, no, right. they, they try to sandbox everything. Right, which as a user, again, you know what? I go into Safari. I use Apple Pay when I buy something because I really don't want some, you know, Joe Blow's random website to have my, my, especially my business credit card number. But as a developer who has clients that, I, I don't know about you guys, but I don't know of any enterprises that are using like Apple identity services for their, uh, you know, for their corporate login, <laughs> right? No. And most, most IT services seem to rely on still Windows infrastructure, from what I can tell, just because managing, like, Active Domain is just easier, at least when I talk to, like, sysadmins. Yeah, it's, I mean, Active Directory is alive and well. Sorry, Active Directory, yeah. Yeah. And sh- shows you how much I know about IT. No, <laughs> I don't know. I looked at some of your stuff, man. You can build a, I, I saw the breadboards. I'll put it that way. <laughs> yeah, it's not IT though. I'm like, I'm like, it's true. As soon as you ask me to like, yeah, as soon as you ask me to like get them on the network, I'm like, I can do REST API, and you're like, yeah, that's not secure. Have fun with that. <laughs> All right. Well, the last thing I had, and I, I don't know, Sean, if you had any other questions or or anything else that you wanted to share, Mike, but this seems like a really nice transition point to the open source side of your work. You've been in the open source community for a very long time. Obviously, you know, you talk a lot about Linux and run Linux and use it. I'm just curious. What role does open source play for your business in terms of, you know, being active in these communities, using open source frameworks and programming languages? You 
are able to use that and you know use it for profit. How does that work? I think there's a lot of people who run Linux and run Raspberry Pis and and love that idea, but they the idea of being able to make money on it seems like too foreign to them, or, or at least too far uh, too far of a bridge to cross. How, but you seem to be pulling it off. How do you use open source to make money? Yeah. So uh, from a purely let's say super hyper Kevin O'Leary capitalist perspective, not having to pay someone for tools is really nice. Right, not having to pay whatever MSDN costs these days, which I literally don't know. Um, I'll give you a real world example that I think Harris, you actually know quite a lot about. We had a client who needed to do some kind of, let's say, factory floor automation. They were looking at buying a bunch of tablets, uh, iPads, but iPads run, I think, at the cheapest now, what four hundred bucks a pop, something like that. We were able to take Raspberry Pis for I think a whopping thirty five dollars a unit. Um, install Raspbian on them, which is, I'm sure your audience knows, is the Raspberry Pi version of Debian. Write a custom application in, I believe, Python. And they had a all-in, minus, you know, obviously the cost of developing the custom software. But they can now stand up another one of these units for 35 bucks. And it gets the job done. Gets the and job as done. Far as, they're, as far as they're concerned, it works. They don't, they don't care what it's running or how it's working. They just need the, the actual thing done. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't think they care at all. In fact, I'm not sure that they know it's Linux. I'll put it that way. I don't know if they really know Raspberry Pi from Apple Pi, right? Like, Yeah, they just care that they can run their application. So I, I am curious, do you open source or closed source your particular applications? So a lot of it is required to be closed source. What we try to do is open source common libraries for things that are, uh, you know, that seem useful to the wider audience. I'll give you an example. Way back when the most popular library I ever open sourced was called Empty Networking because I'm not vain at all. And what it did was it was I so this is so deep into iOS development. You can you can tell me to stop at any point. But back in the dark old days when you had to do ma- manual memory management in iOS. So we're, we're going back more than we're going back a, a decade, a little over a decade. Before ASI HTTP, which was a common networking library, was out, it was a pretty normal pain point, particularly for newer developers, to like write, you know, REST queries that didn't leak memory. Right? Sounds silly. It sounds insane now. I know if you're listeners, if any of you are modern like Swift developers, you're sitting there thinking, "What?" But sure was. So I just wrote a simple library that was basically a functional style programming library of. You do empty networking dot get, give it a URL, give it a dictionary of parameters or you know header options, and you're good. Creates the request, gets the data, returns it to you in a dictionary, destroys the uh, underlying object. Yeah, it seems simple enough, but I can see why that's a that's a pain. It's like you know you're used to if you're used to working in like C where you actually have to you know malloc and free up your memory spaces, then you know or or the other way around, you're used to not having to worry about that. And you suddenly have to do yeah do that like. Well, <laughs> it's nice to have those things do it for you. Well, remember, we're we're talking in the dark ages here, right? So the language was Objective C, and this library was in right. fact in C. So this is before you know automatic reference counting came to iOS and all that kind of fun memory management stuff. Um, more modern, I think we have a couple little Ruby things out there that do some database normalization stuff like that. It it is definitely something where I want to put more emphasis on going forward to kind of get larger frameworks out the door it is tough though because you have to get permission from clients before you can do anything like that yeah yeah and you know what you bring up a good point of you know if you're involved in the open source community um how do you strike that balance right you're you're working with a client um who wants to own all the intellectual property or you know some joint ownership but they don't want it open source so people can see what they're doing um but you can still give back to this open source community by open sourcing your loan libraries and as long as your client is cool with that then i think that's still a great benefit for people in fact i see microsoft do this a lot of times um you know the the big big giant that everybody like everybody in the open source community like to hate on um i watch them do a lot of stuff where they are now open sourcing a lot of their libraries so like i was using um is it C, CPP REST, C++ REST? Mm-hmm. Um, that's all open source and it's all maintained by Microsoft, which is kind of cool to see that, you know, Windows is certainly far from open source, but, you know, they're starting to give us some open source options for developing on it, for running things. And I've heard instances that we might get some kind of Linux thing for Windows soon. I don't know much about that. So there's the, I know a little bit about that. There's the, uh, so Microsoft has actually their own Linux distro now. 
that's yeah cool. for for iot but it's super tied to azure um oh there's also the subsystem for linux which they're actually shipping a linux kernel in windows now um and believe it or not dot net you know dot net is actually open source now wow yeah yeah i'm actually a member of the dot net foundation it's uh it's surprising how much the the microsoft development ecosystem has embraced open source yeah, no, they're, they're really trying to do good for the community, you know, despite the, the dark ages of what was it like the 90s yeah. and the early 2000s yeah. where, you know, you were you were open source and anti Microsoft or you were a office worker and you had to use Microsoft. Yeah, that was basically it. I would add that I, I do try to promote STEM and uh, particularly free software in STEM. I'm doing a little contest now for kids for Earth Day. Um, if they submit in a free software licensed any kind of project or design or engineering project via GitHub, um, whoever has the best one is actually going to win a System76 Thalia. Ooh. Yeah. Where, where can they go to find more about this? That's really uh, cool. Go to themadbotter.com. It's, it's going to be the featured post there. Excellent. Yeah. So if you're listening and you have children or you're an educator, definitely check that out. That sounds like Yeah, we, we do this every year for Earth Day because I would personally like to not die from climate change. So. Yeah. Yeah, I hear you. Well, speak for yourselves. <laughs> <laughs> Harris is going out in a blaze of fire. Harris just threw a tin can down on the ground and left. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I think that's awesome. And I think it's cool to have something that's tied into STEM and also just like a bigger, bigger concern. You mentioned the madbotter.com. Where else can uh, where else can folks find you? If they're like, oh my gosh, I need more Mike Dominic in my life. I've loved this interview and it's and it's over too early. Which how could you not be? Uh at Dumanuko <laughs> on Twitter and uh just look up the Mike Dominic show. Awesome. Well, thanks for joining us, Mike. We appreciate it. Thank you. And uh, check out that contest. Follow Mike on Twitter. He loves Twitter. And uh, send him some spam on LinkedIn. Awesome. Thank you, guys. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, rate, and share the show. Let us know what you think on Twitter at HelloBlinkShow. Find show notes at HelloBlinkShow.com. The Hello Blink Show is shared under a CC BY 4.0 license by Skalriza LLC and Kenny Consulting Group LLC. The intro and outro music is Routine by Amin Maxwell and is shared under a CC BY 3.0 license. This song can be found at soundcloud.com slash Maxwell slash routine.